This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, September 9th of 2019, it's episode 161. In this episode, Daniel Kwan joins us to talk about historical games. Plus, when backstory informs character mechanics, Ross Rifles, Asians Represent, Historical Complexity, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Daniel. We have a guest. We have a we Daniel. We got a guest. I am oh. a Daniel. And we are Welcome, excited. Sir. Well, thank you for having me. No, thank, thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for uh, for rushing in and getting on the mics with us. We know that was a, a tight thing for you. We appreciate it. No, no. Thank you for having me. I, I was rushing, admittedly rushing home from the game store. Okay. Oh, so, <laughs> the best any, place any to good, uh, any good pulls from the game store while you were there? Uh, I bought, I treated myself to an entire brick of D&D minis. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, I have to say, I love virtual tabletops. All of my gaming has been done on virtual tabletops for the past several years, but I do miss minis. I really do. I, I love them. I recently just did a, a big reorganization of my mini collection, and I realized that I didn't have as many as I thought I did, so I had to remedy that. And I've been thinking about this for like two weeks. So <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it today because my my month is super busy. So I drove home, and then I got on my bike, and I biked to the game store, and then I biked back. Oh, perfect. Like a like an 18-kilometer ordeal. Oh, Ooh, Wow. But hey, that's good exercise, though. That's good. Yeah, yeah, I got my exercise in. I'm not exercising tonight. I'm done. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. Well done. All right. So, Daniel, tell us a little bit about, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What have you done that's, that's cool and the reason we have you on? And uh, just kind of introduce yourself a little bit. Wow. Okay. I have worn many, many hats. Um, I am a former museum educator. I worked at the Royal Ontario Museum from 2005 to 2019 this year. Oh. Yeah, now now I work in tech. But at the museum, I was actually, I oversaw a program that used Dungeons and Dragons to teach kids history, science, and social skills. Uh, alongside that, I'm a, I'm a retired archaeologist. I used to be a professional academic archaeologist. I worked in, all throughout West Asia, I worked uh, across the Transjordan area, worked in Greece and all over China. So yeah, I've worn many hats and now uh, I work in tech. I have a publishing company. I host the, uh, I co-host the Asians Represent podcast on the One Shot Network. We do a whole bunch of really cool things about Asian representation and uh, trying to create uh, unique portrayals of D&D worlds and fair portrayals of our cultures in D&D worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. And I run a small organization in Toronto called Level Up Gaming. We help adults with autism and other disabilities develop their social skills through gaming opportunities. We use like tabletop games and D&D. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> that is nice. fascinating. That's super cool. Now, speaking of your publishing house, the reason why we, we've actually got you on tonight, you have announced on Twitter that you're going to be doing a Kickstarter soon. Do tell us about that. Yes. So on October 4th, we are going to be putting out a Kickstarter for a game that my two my two business partners and I have been working on for two years called Ross Rifles. Uh, Ross Rifles is a Powered by the Apocalypse hack about the Canadian Expeditionary Force. And the idea is for us to have an authentic World War I game without any of the occult. Because if you, if you look up a lot of historical games about the First World War, there's always something about the occult. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of Cthulhu. And a lot stuff of Cthulhu. And-, and we didn't want that. We wanted a game that portrayed the war as it was. I, in my opinion, I feel like a lot of people use, you know, the occult in World War One as a way of kind of I'm not justifying, but a way a, a way to portray the violence in no man's land and the fear that the soldiers had. But that fear was was of other people. And yeah. that fear was something that shouldn't be boiled down to the supernatural in my mind. So we we wrote Ross Rifles, but we also wrote this game as a way to highlight the diversity of the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're in high school and you're learning about the First World War in Canada— and you're reading your textbook, because I guess I'm a dinosaur, and you're reading your <laughs> textbook, 
you're you're often seeing portrayals of just white people, like European people, fighting this war. But a couple of years ago, I I did this interview uh, for my old podcast, Curiosity and Focus. It's still it's still in syndication, but I just haven't produced a new episode in a couple months. But I did this interview with a retired engineer named Jack Jin, and he had essentially just rediscovered, I don't want to say discovered because that kind of implies that it wasn't there, but he rediscovered the story of a soldier, a Canadian soldier named Frederick Lee. And everybody kind of thought Frederick Lee was this British person from Kamloops, BC. And turns out Frederick was Chinese. And I actually didn't know that Chinese people fought in the First World War. And I interviewed him about Frederick and the stories about the First World War. And it kind of opened my eyes to this all of this omitted history all of these communities that were seen as second class citizens and not even and in many ways not even seen as canadians fighting for canada and fighting for recognition at home while they were in europe and so we wanted to write ross rifles as a way of empowering people to tell these stories to tell authentic stories about their communities and yeah that's that's the project <laughs> All right. Uh, that sounds amazing. I'm very excited. Two things about that. Um, first of all, I really think this is a cool idea because World War One is a criminally underused role playing setting, just in general. And I think you know, just taking a straightforward historical approach to that is probably a very good idea. Second thing is just kind of a, a little question: Have you heard the new Sabaton album about the First World War? No. If you like heavy metal at all, I do. Look it up. <laughs> the, the Great War is that their album? Yep. Yeah, that's the, the album. Um, in particular, I would recommend the song "Fields of Verdun" if you want to start with just one of them. I'm going to listen to uh, to all yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah, the Minova cover is also quite good. Dang! I'm, oh, of course, it's a Swedish band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm definitely going to listen to this. I I recently kind of got into metal. And this is this is nice. This is a, a nice different thing for me. Yeah. And these guys are kind of like, you know, power slash thrash metal. They're not like the growling or screaming kind of stuff. They're still singing. Oh, I, li I like that. I like the power metal. That's good. Yeah. Ton is an, an excellent example. They're pretty much their entire catalog. The Everything that they do is either a cover or a song about military history of some kind. So you may find them enjoyable as writing music in the future or something. I mean, that sounds very enjoyable to me. <laughs> I also recently cool. gone to a, a, like a cult rock. There's this local band mm. in Toronto called Blood Ceremony. Mm. And when I, and they have like a flautist oh. and their lead singer, she, she plays the flute. But, but I, I describe it to people as this is, this is D&D &D music. <laughs> and and it's, it's so great. Yeah. There's oh, a, great. there's an Indian metal band with a, a flute player in it too, uh, Bloodywood. They're also quite good. They've done songs about like fighting with depression and oh stuff, wow. So they might also be fun for you to look up as long as we're sort of on that topic. Uh, yeah, so. we are. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we are now. And this is the moment when we all became friends. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Yes. Podcasts are good for that. Yeah, they really are. Turns out getting people around and talking for a while. It creates friendships. Weird, yeah. I know. Daniel, you've plugged Ross Rifles. Is there anything else you want to take a minute to plug? Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, l listen to our podcast, Asians Represent. It is a good one. I've, I've, I've just started listening to it recently on my commutes. Oh, thank you. It's a good one. Yeah, it's... We've recently kind of diversified our content. We started off as just a discussion-based podcast. We were interviewing Asian creators and kind of highlighting their contributions to the industry. And then we realized that so many people hadn't had either been listening to actual plays about Asia that were done by white people or just weren't being represented in, in media. And we were like, in podcasts in particular, and we were like, okay, we got to do something. So we started doing D&D. &D, and actually, as of today, we released uh, episode one of a Ross Rifles actual play. So if people want to kind of hear about a story, like a short story about, you know, three Asian characters in the First World War, that's out there. And we do a D&D &D show set in a homebrew Asian world inspired by just uh, like China in the Han Dynasty. So, yeah, we're, we're doing some really cool things. But, you know, Ross Rifles on Kickstarter and Asians Represent. But it, it's all it can all be found through my Twitter Right. And what is that Twitter? Uh, at Daniel H. Kwan. Uh, so it's Daniel 
H K W A N. Very cool. And I will make sure to link uh, your Twitter, the Asians Represent Twitter, and your website. Uh, basically everything, <laughs> everything <laughs> I can find, everything you've put in the show notes, all of that is going to be in the show notes for the show. So please make sure to check that out. Anybody who is listening. Oh, and I write silly little games on the side. I write like silly games as a hobby like that. I don't really I just put out for free. <laughs> I recently released a game about string cheese. Ooh. It's just okay. about eating string cheese. Uh, uh, Peter, I'm sorry that we're not going to be playing Offworlders. <laughs> yeah. It's actually a solo got game. Some string cheese, actually. It, it's, yeah. it's a contemplative solo game about eating mindful eating. Hmm. All right. <laughs> it's weird. Okay. No, listen, this is this is not a bad thing. We've talked about Honey Heist on here before. Oh, that's a great <laughs> game. That's a fantastic yeah. game. Oh, I've tweeted really about uh, a fake game that no one's played yet about competitive Pringles eating. So. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds like a really that... good way to wind up with a sliced up mouth. Uh, yeah. No, because the goal is not to eat them quickly. I, I there there's a whole tweet string up on my Twitter. You can go look at it. It's fairly recent. It was funny actually. It Thank was good. <laughs> I enjoyed it. All right. Before we get into our main topic here, uh Daniel, thank you again for joining us. It this is going to be a, a fantastic show. We're going to be talking about historical settings and systems. Before we get into that, do we have any relevant news and notes? Yes. I find Okay, so I think it was a couple episodes ago, Peter and I made up a setting for a game that I'm going to be running for kiddos. Yep. That's definitely happening now. I have four kiddos lined up. I got three tanks and a sorcerer. Oh, no. <laughs> Woo! We're going to have... Please tell me it's at least a divine soul sorcerer. Them tanks need some healing. He doesn't know anything <laughs> yet. Like, he was just like, I just want to do magic. I'm like, you want to do bookkeeping? He's like, no. I'm like, cool. Sorcerer is great for you. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That sounds like it's going to be exciting. Yeah, I'm very excited. Very cool. I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that that's kicked off. That I, that's going to generate all sorts of cool stories. Oh yeah, for sure. Like the first the first session the the or session zero is going to be uh, this coming Saturday. I'm very very excited. Yeah, no one no one games like kids. It's great. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Except for maybe new gamers. New gamers also game pretty hard. Well, no, yeah. I would yeah. say I would say that kids don't have. That fear of judgment that you see in mm -hmm. adult, like new adult gamers. So when kids, they begin to freely role play where adults kind of have to wait and see if somebody else at the table does it and then they try mm -hmm. it. But kids just kind of go all out. Yeah. And in this case, I've got two kiddos who've never role played before. The other two have actually got parents who have already run D&D &D for them. So very, very much like my situation growing up. So so that's that's going to be really interesting. They like to start you gaming young up in the wilds of Canada, don't they? You know what? That was pretty much just me for no, like ages. I, yeah, <laughs> I was I started playing D&D when I was when I was 10. Yeah. I'm 29 now. Yeah, I started playing when I was 4. I didn't have and, friends and, who played D&D yeah. like outside of where I was playing it until sure. I was in university. Yeah. Yep, I actually started in college, so yeah. Well, that's, that's my cool. that's I'm, my news. Let's go ahead then and roll for our Patreon question. So we have a table of questions that we roll on with a die as appropriate, and this is all questions from our Patreon subscribers. So let's go ahead and uh, Daniel, you're more than welcome to answer if you like. Sweet, welcome and encouraged. Indeed. Okay, so this is from Aaron Arnold, and he asks. To what extent does your backstory need to inform your build? And this is a very D&D-like question here, so that's appropriate. How much does your backstory need to inform the things your character can do in the fiction of the world? Hmm. I find it's often the other way around. My build yeah. tends to inform my backstory, um, mm -hmm. which I suppose once it's finished means that my backstory informs my build quite a bit because they were kind of made at the same time but i i do feel like you get a lot more out of the game if what you can do is explained by your personal history you know N nasir's got different sections of his life that are kind of there to explain why he can do x y and z or lambert's 
kind of naturey focus and stuff was explained by the fact that he was part of a, a monastery that was out in the kind of a remote area and he spent a lot of time in the natural world. And I, I think if you don't give yourself that, you're just leaving potential stuff on the table for later. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, if you're just going to, you know, play 5e and you're going to do the, you know, hack and slash dungeon crawl thing and you need two of the skills that a particular background gives you and you don't really want to overthink it. I mean, if that's what the game is, that's what the game is, you know, go right ahead. But if you're going to be doing something that's more story and RP heavy, I would I would really put some work into trying to make those two aspects match up. I think you'll have a, a better experience for it. I go back and forth on this one quite a bit. I think like I'm trying to remember how I built Ganelon and I don't even remember like Ganelon started off with tiny sunglasses. We did an episode about that. I think a better example is one of a a character I actually played in a one shot when I was in, I think, early high school where we we were just we were just doing a one shot. We knew it was a one shot. So we just did the method one level one. We just rolled our stats straight from top to bottom. And so my in that case, my stats informed my backstory, which was basically one of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one, one, one of the stupidest smart people you're ever going to meet like she had a huge amount of common sense but could not like she couldn't do social situations and she couldn't do logical thinking very well so it, it, it was just one of those things where i was like okay so i have one of the lowest int scores i'm ever going to roll i have one of the highest wisdom scores i'm, I'm ever going to roll and sort of like low average charisma what can i do with this and so i basically made a character who had had everything handed to her in life except like some basic common sense handed to her from the the servants around her house and stuff like that whereas with john who i'm playing in the city on the hill game i that that was a point by system so i think at least for me with a point by system i go backstory to build when i'm rolling randomly that's build to backstory so i sort of flip-flop on that depending no that's that's actually kind of where i come down for me when i'm creating a a character the question is is there some mechanical thing i want to play with if it's a DD game for example I usually am like, well, you know, I kind of want to play with this mechanic, this class. I want to do this thing. And then I will build a character that became that. Uh, that's again, talking about city on a hill. You know, I was like, well, I wanted to, I want to play a fighter. All right. Let me try and make a, an interesting fighter character. And then it kind of worked in and ended up becoming Trather. Whereas in games that don't have a mechanic I want to play with, I almost always start backstory and then end up building into the character. And I don't necessarily know why. I think it's just two different mindsets. One is kind of the the D&D Shadowrun min-maxi mindset that I grew up playing with. And then when I'm playing a game that doesn't have that, that bit doesn't engage and I create characters and play very differently. So I think that's where it comes up for me. Yeah, I, I start with a concept at Gen Con, I did a live show with the Broadswords and Travis from the Adventure Zone. And the night before, I <laughs> I had planned on playing a monk because I, I whenever I do a Broadswords collaboration, I always play a monk and kind of for jokes. And um, the night before, they were like, oh, yeah, this is this is going to take place in modern Faerun and you're going to be college kids. And I was like, oh, I was I did apparently was not listening to to what everybody was planning and so i was like okay what am i gonna do and i was like you know what i'll stick with the monk and i'll just be jeremy lynn the monk and i played as a basketball player but i just used the monk's abilities to play basketball and (laughs) that's all i I did (laughs) legit yeah, yeah you could hmm. move do a speed, lot worse jumping. Than... Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> right? And so I was like, I'll stick with that. I did uh, a game in... I, I I often also like to put my characters at a disadvantage. So mm-hmm. I, I intentionally pick things that are suboptimal. Uh, be it like if the GM is like, you can have one uncommon magic item or something like that. So at D&D Live, I played, uh, yet again, a halfling monk. And I put everything into strength. Um but we were going into Avernus, so we were going into, like, the D&D hell. And 
I uh, I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna be you know an elemental monk, and I'm gonna specialize in water, so that all I do is manipulate steam, and that was my whole shtick, and it was great. Hmm. Nice, very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, Aaron, thank you for your question. We appreciate it. And again, if anybody wants to ask their own questions, first of all, if you are already a Patreon backer, make sure you get your questions in. And second, if you are not, for as little as a dollar a month, you help support the show and you get to ask questions and put them on the table and a whole host of benefits besides. So, you know, you help keep us on the internet, interviewing cool people like Daniel. And it's great. Woo. All right, let's get our scripture read here. Daniel, you offered to take this first one from Job. Do you want to go ahead and do that? Yes, yes. Ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? That was Job chapter 8, verses 8 to 10. And this is Psalm 78, verses 1 to 4. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. And I'll take Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. All right. So we are talking about historical settings and systems. And Daniel, of course, we had to bring you on for this. Yes. Because Ross Rifles aside, you've got a wonderful background in history and education and in gaming. And that makes you the perfect person to answer what has been traditionally a pretty difficult question for a lot of gamers, namely... How do you make a historical game interesting and work? And how do you find a system that fits that period? Or how do you make that system your own self? Yeah, how do you make that work? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on what you want the players to experience. So with Ross Rifles, we we wanted combat because that was a part of it. But in World War I, there were also times of like intense boredom. And when you're designing a game, you have to really focus on like, well, what is going to be my gameplay loop? What are the players going to do when they play the games? And a lot of Ross Rifles is, I mean, when I, when I, when I play this with people, I tell them, look, we're not going to change the outcome of the major battles in history. We're not going to do that because that just wouldn't happen from, you know, the perspective of like five soldiers. Right. The effect that they have on the war will largely be minimal. But the effect that they have on each other will be very profound. So our game is about, you know, camaraderie. It's about, you know, this, you know, this section of soldiers who are sharing these terrible, terrible living conditions in the trenches. But through either, you know, faith or some other forms of belief, they they make it, right? And so for us, the Apocalypse World engine was perfect because it's so narrative driven and there are ways in which you can modify it like the way Dungeon World has to make it combat heavy. And so we kind of have a modified version of the Apocalypse World engine that has a big emphasis on dangerous combat. It's very easy to, well, I wouldn't say very easy, but it's possible for characters to die in Ross Rifles. And that's not something you see too often in Powered by the Apocalypse games, which based on the the dice rolling, have you you're constantly either winning with conditions or winning. So you're constantly moving forward. And Ross Rifles, you're kind of meant to feel like it's hopeless. But in all of that hopelessness, you still have each other. Well, and I mean, that's very true to the setting. Exactly. Verdun lasted for almost a year. It, it was, what, like 10 months of fighting or something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there were, I mean, that was just one battle. So it was definitely not a war where... There was a lot of forward momentum. <laughs> yeah, so so imagine being a, a soldier in in the trenches, in sections of the trenches where, where there wasn't even any fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just trapped in a machine. You know, it's the I, I believe I've heard World War One described as really kind of the first war where industrialization was the main like combatant in a weird way, where you know we got to see the horrors of the machine of war. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, millions of shells fired, poison gas, the first use of, like, you know, mechanization and stuff. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and this was a new experience for people who thought that they were going to fight a war like the South African wars. Yeah. Who thought they were going to stand in open fields and have these long-distance engagements. They didn't think that they'd be living in mud. They didn't think that war neuroses or, or shell shock would would be a factor they didn't think that their comrades would literally forget how to speak just from the effects of being there you you guys chose a a a sort of a system that would allow you to have more of an interpersonal thing when and obviously like in choosing a historical time period to go with you are and especially narrowing it the way that you have to specifically world war one in the trenches that hugely affects the tone of the game. You've obviously chosen the tone for Ross Rifles to be grim yet hopeful. How do you go about making that happen within sort of the framework of a mechanical game? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, how do we make it feel grim yet hopeful? Yeah. I think a lot of it lends itself to the style of GMing that goes with an Apocalypse World game. A lot of it is is it's highly collaborative. So like unlike D and D, which you know features that like the GM might tell you what's going to happen and this is what's going to happen. In this game, you're constantly touching base with the players. You're constantly asking, "Hey, is this okay? Are these themes okay? Was that scene okay? Is it okay to describe this?" But also like, what are you doing? For instance, uh, at a at a convention called um, Queen City Conquest, I I ran a game where the players were pinned down in their trench. We started the game off with them pinned down in the trenches. And one of the soldiers, uh, one of the characters, he, he he decided he wanted to be a sniper. I had him kind of positioned, watching over the trenches, looking for this enemy sniper, but he couldn't. And their lieutenant came and said, if you don't find that sniper, I'm sending all of you over the top to charge at night. And so that that narrative prompt gave them something to... Like a, like a goal that they didn't want to have to achieve. They they had to find the sniper, but they didn't want to have to go over the top. So this urgency, this looming threat really made it feel grim. And the players vibed off of that. And they were like, well, I really don't want to go. And then they were like, look, this sniper, we, we, need, we know that you are like a lone wolf. And we know that you know, things have been tough for you since you lost your old section because that was his backstory. But let us help you. And that's how like hope came in. When they but they ultimately begin to work together. Yeah, that's that's cool. One of the things I do love about Powered by the Apocalypse style games is that when you roll the dice, the status quo changes. Hundred percent. And that seems like a system that's well suited to this environment where you have what feels eternal kind of war, a war that you really can't impact. It's going to go on, but in the small micro setting of this trench and these people you have tremendous ability just to have this very mutable conflict just you know go back and forth and dramatic changes because it's not just you know hey you rolled badly something bad happens across no man's land it's something bad happens in the trench with your lieutenant you see the captain coming down and he doesn't look happy and he's headed for you guys something's going on Oh dear, something is about to change. And I think that's a valuable mechanic because one thing I've gotten less and less fond of over the course of my gaming career is pass-fail mechanics. Yes. Failure means, I guess, nothing? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Or just something really bad happens and you sit out and stop participating for a while. If... An opponent is taking the initiative and you have to roll something. Failure is generally bad, a saving throw, say. Whereas if you are rolling as a player for something that you want to do and you fail, you're sort of left with this question of, do I punish them for trying or do I just sort of ignore it and let them try again until they succeed, at which point we kind of didn't need to roll anything? You know, what? what is failure? It's usually boring. Whereas when you specifically say, and this doesn't have to be specific to Powered by the Apocalypse, but when you specifically say every roll of the dice changes the status quo and we need to figure out how, then 
A, dice rolling is meaningful and tense and fun, but B, it means that things continue to happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. The game is constantly moving forward. And that, that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it's a, a good system for that. And like I said, it's I've gotten more and more frustrated with systems that just don't really allow for that to happen. But there is one thing I need to ask you about, Daniel. How much do you feel that your players need to know about World War One for a game like Ross Rifles? Not too much, to be honest. Not too much at all. I mean, in the book, we actually provided a pretty comprehensive history of it. We we provide we wrote an entire history of the war. We wrote a, a history of the Ross Rifle itself, as well as the Lee Enfield and the Lee Metford. And then we actually provided four of the major battles that Canada participated in uh, with details on, you know, what the general army was doing, but as well as tables full of objectives that you could do. Which battles, just out of sheer curiosity? So we, we did the second battle of Yeep, uh, the Somme, Passchendaele, and Vimy Ridge. And some of our stretch goals are going to be additional battles, like the Battle of Hill 70, which is particularly significant to people of Asian ancestry, because really? a lot of Asians fought there. Okay. Uh, the, um, the Battle of Hill 70 took place alongside Battle of Passchendaele. And basically what was happening was the Canadians were tasked with assaulting this hill and drawing German reinforcements away from Passchendaele. Passchendaele was the one with the really bad mud, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. I remember listening to um, the Hardcore History series on the First World War. It's a great show. Hearing about the mud in Passchendaele, and it's just like, oh, <laughs> that's not something you normally get, but it, that was what, um, chewed up by the artillery and then turned soggy or something. I forget. There was something special about it, but I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent here. I'm sorry. It was just... No, that's that's fine. But the, see, that's that's something interesting, though. I don't know anything about Passchendaele. And so when I sit down to play a game of Ross Rifles in a collaborative game like Powered by the Apocalypse, like a Dungeon World kind of game or like what you're basing it off of here, I always feel a little bad that I don't have enough to bring to the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, one of the things with, with the game is that you're learning through play. Right? Mm-hmm. Like the the soldiers themselves, many of them didn't know what was going on. Sure. They were just there. You were in your trance. You knew that Germans were on the other side of no man's land. And you knew that they couldn't get here. And you had to try to go over there and not die. And again, most of the, the drama doesn't hinge on your understanding of history. It hinges on your relationships with the other soldiers. And you can lean on either the GM or any of the PCs because it's just so collaborative. And as you're playing, you could start to do some research. Be like, oh, during character creation, you're like, oh, wait, I, I could be Chinese. Let's read about these people. And so a, a part of it is supposed to be exploratory. It's it's meant for you to dive into the war. It's it's not meant for you to, you know, it's not meant only for people who know about World War One. It's meant for for anybody. And you don't even have to be Canadian, right? Because, you know, Americans oh, fought in the First World War. Uh, even though the Americans like to say, yeah, we, we, we helped, we won that war. But you really came in in the last year. Yeah. Um, no argument here. Yeah, there was, there was minimal participation. We... We basically came in and kind of swept up the rubble at the end, if I'm going to be really honest. But y'all did kick ass in the Second World War. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is there's there's that you could be American. I mean, the rules are are not just for Canadians. There's no like, you know, roll with maple syrup and get <laughs> the polar bear. There's none of that. There's none of that. It's, you know, you're rolling with brawn to strike somebody with your bayonet or your your trench club using the up close and personal move and you could play it as Germans. You could even do a scenario where I would actually love to do this with two people. And one person was a German soldier and the other person was a Canadian soldier trapped in no man's land in the middle of a gunfight. What do you do? Do you, Hmm. do you make peace with each other or do you try to duke it out in the midst of this battle? Or is it even worth doing that? And you could be anybody in the war. Right. Because it's ultimately about the, interpersonal relationships exactly that's fantastic that would be a fantastic con scenario for just a couple of people like people from different armies all trapped in the middle of no man's land with artillery and bullets screaming overhead that's that's quite the oh, bottle yeah. episode there I'd, I'd love to do the build up to the christmas truce oh that, that would, would be, be cool, cool too 
I mean, yeah. you know what? If we if we all find ourselves at a con together, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good to me. I'm I'm excited already. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, let me ask you this. You mentioned hardcore history. What resources did you go to when writing this book? You you mentioned as well the the interview that you had with the gentleman who was doing research on yep. on the Chinese people, yeah. Yeah, the Chinese people, thank you. And what where else did you go to start writing Ross Rifles? I had the the privilege of working at a museum <laughs> while I while I was doing that that had a display on the First World War. But I also you know had the opportunity to I I traveled I went to Ottawa. Patrick, my co-author, and I went to Ottawa to the Canadian War Museum, and we actually spent about four hours in the armory with their armorer oh, handling yeah. all of the Ross rifles because there are oh, wow. close to. 30 variants if you really get into the nitty gritties. There are close to 30 variants of the Ross rifle and we handled all of them. We got to look at artifacts like personal effects of soldiers. We got to see, uh, we, we learned about their uniforms and uh, how the insignias worked on the uniforms because they were like, there are some that you rarely see in photos. We actually got to see like Billy Bishop's uniform, which is really cool. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time going to museums but we also spent a lot of time working with veterans. An old colleague of mine is a, a veteran of the Canadian Forces and uh, lives with PTSD. And he studies it and its effects on, on other soldiers and is an advocate mm. for soldiers. And so I talked to him about our language in the game and the game mechanics and how the mechanics of stress, like psychological stress, and if those were accurate but also respectful. Good. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we play tested it pretty extensively. I mean, we play tested it for with people of all ages. Actually, our first play test was involved 60 people. They were all my students and we did it on Remembrance Day 2017 oh, wow. and we did the Battle of Vimy Ridge and actually we taught the game to all of my GMs, all my staff and we played it all day and we did the Battle of Vimy Ridge and it went really well. So, we've I've played it at basically every con. I've probably played Ross Rifles at this point with close to 1000 people. Oh, huh. wow. wow. That's interesting. And it's gone through multiple changes. We've played it with soldiers, knowingly and unknowingly. Oh, yeah. He actually played it with, he, he, he played it with one of my other co-authors, who's also named Daniel. And at the end of the con, he was like, yeah, you know, I'm an active member of the Canadian Forces and I was in Afghanistan twice. Uh, you should come to our regiment and play it. And we were like, okay. <laughs> and so we went and we played it with a, a room full of, full of soldiers. It was really, it was a really cool experience because they, A, they really liked the game and B, they, they really helped us make it as authentic as we could possibly make a, a tabletop role playing game while still being entertaining. So there was that. And then all, as well as like Patrick and Daniel, both of their families, uh, they both had ancestors who were in the war. So we got to draw on their family histories. Uh, we put a lot of work into research and making sure that it, it was a fair and, respectful representation of the war, but as well as a game that anybody could play without having our two years of research. Right. Yeah. And I think if anyone listening is thinking of writing a game, and I know a lot of people who get involved in gaming want to write their own game, and I think that's a very valuable thing. That's fantastic. If you're writing a historical game, you're going to have to do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. More than you think. Yeah, even more than that. Keep going. Keep, keep going. Oh, yeah. hundred yes. <laughs> percent. It's a lot. And I will say this. First of all, read and read and read and read and read and read and keep reading. You're going to find an enormous number of books and the different perspectives from different historians is invaluable. Go for primary mm -hmm. sources where you can find them, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And at the, at the time, I had access to a university library. I was doing a PhD at the time and it i it, you know it was a free resource that i had i i, w I would have been stupid not to of course absolutely but the local libraries have just as good resources oh yeah and use the interlibrary loan system <laughs> exactly yeah please use the interlibrary loan system no you're not being a bother it's my job <laughs> please <laughs> well you hear it from the library use the interlibrary right here, loan so. system yes please you pay for it please use it yeah. yes. it's fine well-researched period pieces, documentaries, podcasts, these are all good, although these are usually summaries, but the the visuals of a documentary can be very valuable. Hearing a podcaster kind of put together a narrative can be very powerful. Talking to people, like you said, Daniel. Yep. If you are able to find that resource, 
that's really, really good because you get that direct information. You know, primary sources. It's critical. Mm-hmm. And and do go to museums. Take you may have to travel. You may take pictures of exhibits. Ask if you can handle things. I, I'm curious. You you said you were able to get into the armory and handle these this equipment for about four hours. Was that difficult to arrange? Probably. That's the war museum. Well, yes and no. So at the time I was like, hey, you know, I, I, so I have a master's in archaeology and, um, you know, I work at a, I'm actively working at a museum and I was like, hey, I did this. And then on top of that, I was like, hey, in my undergraduate degree, I actually got a gun license. So I have a lot of experience with, with firearms. And so they were like, oh, so A, I have a license and B, I'm a museum professional. They were like, no problem. Let's do this. It was super easy. It, yeah. It was just one email. <laughs> I bet you if you're not a museum professional, though. Yeah, if it was the perfect story, if, if it was like the perfect scenario, if you didn't have all of those check marks, uh, it would have been incredibly difficult for you. But always ask. The entire email is just the word no with punctuation between it. You know, <laughs> yes. No, no, In, no, 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 no. <laughs> maybe lol. <laughs> uh, maybe, like, yeah. Maybe. Go ahead and ask. It does not hurt to ask. And... See if you can find a professor to talk to who may be able to get you engaged with somebody who's able to talk about things knowledgeably. Just any amount of research you can do is critical. See if you, if they're holding any workshops or anything like that. I know that some some of the local ones I, – I am lucky to live nearby Canada's only Canadian clock museum. That's super cool. And every now and then, Buddy holds workshops about clock cleaning and – it's interesting. I know that's a very like small scale example, but do see if they're holding any workshops, special exhibits, anything like that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. Uh, Daniel, you kind of had something to say about that too, it sounded like. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, yeah, just make use of every single resource that you have. I mean, don't be afraid to ask. That was the thing with the museum. People were like, oh, it's never going to happen. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to ask. And it happened. And it was... Uh, I think without that experience, we probably, the game might not have been finished or it would have been in a really different state. As well as going to cons like Metatopia, that was a big one. Metatopia, are you folks familiar with Metatopia? It's the game design one, right? Yeah, it's the game design con in in Morristown, Jersey. And we went to Metatopia with the intention of being like announcing a completed Ross Rifles. We were like, it's done. We had a quick start finished and everything. This was last year. And I sat down. We were playing. We had played a couple of great games with some amazing people. And then I played a game with Mark Diaz Truman, who, who is who is who is a friend of mine. And Mark, Mark is, you know, an acclaimed Powered by the Apocalypse author who wrote, you know, Cartel urban shadows and we we were he played the game and he, he had a really good time but he was like okay so this is where it sucks and i said bring it on i need to hear this and he told me parts of the game that sucked and on that what ended up being a 10-hour drive back because we got lost um oh no <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> oh on the I'm drive sorry. back we rewrote the entire game oh huh. wow impressive yeah we rewrote like the whole thing we made all new playbooks we did all new game mechanics on that drive back and so i was like yelling on the drive back and daniel my co my co-pilot and co-author was like writing everything down on his phone in facebook messages sending them to our <laughs> <Yeah>. group <laughs> and we were like patrick couldn't be there so here just like bombarding him with messages and you know <laughs> It ended up, we got so excited, we ended up speeding, we got pulled over twice by the police, and we were like, oh my god, we're so sorry, we're game designers, and we're just really excited. <laughs> Nothing bad happened. Oh, um, there you go. And yeah, we, we rewrote the whole game, and so we actually, it actually set us back a year. Oh, wow. Mm. But it was super valuable, and I think that the game that we have now is is far better than what it was before. Don't be afraid to playtest it with people who might not like it or play your game with people who maybe might not be into that genre of game sure no yeah. i think that's because they're critical. going to come at it with a totally different perspective of someone who is already biased towards wanting to like it mm-hmm. exactly if that, if that makes sense and again is probably not bringing as much information to the table ahead of time yeah there are there are like lots of fans of the show uh like of the game and they will like it no matter what. There was a there's like this this 
kid and he really loves it and he wanted to do an actual play and he was he kept messaging us on Instagram being like hey Alec is it out yet is the, is the quick start out yet can can I play it and I was like we were like no no just give us some time and he was just like I'm just going to I'm just going to use the old one. And we're like, no, don't. Because if you use the old one, if you use the old one, you're going to misrepresent the game. So that's why we actually ended up taking down the old one because of him. We were like, okay, the new, the new one is so different. You no, but yeah, like play it with people who aren't in your circles, play it with people who will willingly play it that aren't into war games or history. Like that's a big one. Yeah. I think that's an excellent piece of advice. You you might also get them into the thing that you're you're trying to do a game about by having them play your game too, which is hey mm-hmm. bonus, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, word of mouth and marketing, uh, never a bad thing. Yeah. All right, Daniel, we're running towards the end of time, but I have a very important question for you here. Yes, this is on stereotypes because the one of the the whole purposes of Ross rifles that you've described is talking about something that's overlooked, something that doesn't fit the stereotype of World War One, which is, you know, Chinese people and, and Asian people fighting in World War One in the, the Western Front. How, when we're talking about a historical setting, we tend to all have these broad stereotypes of any time period, even quite recent time periods. I have stereotypes of the 80s and I grew up in the 80s, okay? Yeah. The reality is history and the people who live in that history are complex and messy and certainly not the neat and simple actors historians want them to be, especially on the page. How much do we work to shatter those stereotypes versus playing into them for familiarity? And how much do we have to balance that against, well, I must have a perfectly accurate representation of everything versus I need to write a book people can consume and play and enjoy? Here's the thing with familiarity. When people say that I need to, they need to, you know, buy into these stereotypes to feel familiar. That's when you realize that that familiarity is problematic. With with Ross rifles, a, a big one is: look, if I'm going to play an Asian character, my experience in the war is going to be a little bit different. But my my views on it on survival are going to be very similar to a non-Asian character. And when when I play Asian characters, I, I, I've said this a lot. But for the most part, my characters are almost always Asian without me, you know, stating so. And I do that purposefully because, you know, if you didn't know my name and you were talking to me right now over this Google Hangouts, probably wouldn't know that I'm Asian based on my voice. And that's how I I kind of approach Asian characters and breaking stereotypes. You know, these Asian characters in Ross Rifles or in any other game that I play have the same lived experiences as any other soldiers, plus some additional things like the racism of the trenches and all that. Mm -hmm. But what makes them Asian are not these stereotypes. What makes them Asian are maybe their values. What makes them Asian, you know, might be their name or other other aspects of their characters, like some items that they're holding on to or something like that. But, you know, the, their voice at the table, like if you're playing an Asian character, needs not be a stereotypical voice to make them Asian. There are other things to let you do that. And that, that's, that's kind of usually my response to playing to the stereotypes of the time period. But also, like, if, if we're going to do that, there's going to be like, well, you can, you can never play. You can't play a, a, a woman in Ross Rifles. A lot of people always ask Agatha, my co-host, the Asians represent, was like, can I, can I play a female character? And we're, and I was like, yeah. And I was like, are you sure? Was this accurate? I said, for Canada? Nah. But for this game? 100%. This is a game. Right. You could do whatever you want. There were other militaries like the Russians. They had, uh, they had an entire battalion. They called them the Battalion of Death and they were all women. Uh, in World War II, they had the Night Witches. Yeah. Oh, those were cool. <laughs> yeah, right? How to make, like, obsolete aircraft into the most terrifying threat. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of Canadian soldiers. Why not let the players be what they want to be? And that's where we take liberties. That's where we kind of drift away from historical accuracy. Because things that might make the war accurate might not be things we want to explore. Like the racism of the trenches we might not be comfortable with that or the brothels of the trenches, right? Or the realities of shell shock or, or any, or the brutality of trench combat. We might not want that. So with Ross rifles, you can, you can lean into those if you'd really like, or 
you can lean into other aspects of the war. Having the characters in game not influence the overall direction of the war lets you do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And that's why making it about the section, about that small group of soldiers, uh, allows you to do everything. Yeah. Okay. I like it. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's my answer. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's good. I do think that I want – I kind of want to remind everyone who's listening. I'm very serious when I say that history is never – as neat and well-defined and clean as any historian presents it as, because historians are having to do a great deal of work and cover a lot of of time, usually, in very broad strokes. Yeah, and historians aren't writing about everybody either. Right. Mm -hmm. And you do end up with historians who overlook certain things, right? Like, for example, Asian people fighting in World War I. Yeah. And... You don't hear about that. Certainly, I had never heard about that. Admittedly, I'm you know I'm from South Carolina. I'm, we learn Civil War history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a spend. Goodness, I I will go on a brief tangent here. We spend oh, so much time on Civil War history in school, and then by the time we get to the 20th century, it's like, and there was a World War One and a World War Two, and then some stuff happened, and we're done. It's it's summer. Go. <laughs> we have yeah. about a month to cover all of that. It's like, oh, come on, guys. Really? So, you know, that's a thing. But it's really important to find those those wonderful little things. I This is my opinion on this. Those wonderful little things that shake up everyone's idea of what this period in time was really like. Not because they somehow shatter the, the whole image, but because they add nuance and detail and make you think, wait, this really was a time and place people lived in and all the complexities of human existence happened in, not just, you know, the the silver screen idea of what it was like at the time. And you know what? If it does shatter your image of a certain period of history, it maybe wasn't such a great picture frame to have it in in the first place. Also true. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if it shatters your your image of a particular period of history, that's just called learning something. Yep. Like (laughs) you have information that you didn't have before. You have found the old information to be inaccurate and now you have the correct information. Hard to see any problems there. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I, you get it. That's exactly what Ross rifles is all about. And that, that's why, you know, doing podcasts like these, I think is really important. So people understand you know, just why it's important to play a, a game about history that doesn't have the occult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, it's I, I get the temptation to shove like the supernatural elements in there. Like <laughs> um, it was such a, a bleak and terrifying time. It's like there were there was even this speaking of Sabaton songs, there was a a battle where they had an incident called the attack of the dead men where a bunch of Russian troops that had been poison gassed survived it, got up, you know, bleeding and chemical burned and did a counter charge and drove the German forces back. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination on a game designer's point to turn that into actual zombies or something. But as much fun as that is, I think just the unadulterated stuff is good, too. Like if listening to hardcore history has told me anything, it's that I did not give history nearly the credit it deserved for being interesting when I was back in elementary, middle and high school that it deserved. And yeah, a lot of the time, the actual history has plenty of lessons and plenty of interest all in its own. And so I commend you for doing that. Well, thank you. Anything else we need to talk about here? Daniel, anything else you want to add? Yeah. So, you know, give give me a follow on social media at Daniel H. Kwan. Um, That's probably the best bet to get everything I, I've, I've, I've spoken about. On October 4th, Ross Rifles drops on Kickstarter. Super excited and super stressed at the same time. <laughs> yeah, understandable. Yeah, based on everybody else we've talked to who's done a Kickstarter, that sounds about like an appropriate reaction. So was it Greg Stolze that said that Kickstarter converts uh, anxiety into cash, but you never know the exchange rate until it's done? Yeah, I think that no, that's that was a him, great yeah. quote. That's a great <laughs> <Yeah>. quote. <laughs> of course, it's Greg Stolze. Of course, it yeah. is. 
<laughs> yeah, as I recall, Greg Stoltz also started his Kickstarter Christmas Day. So yeah, yeah he did do that. Oh, that's that's rough. That's that's rough. Everybody's going to yeah. be spending their money on Boxing Day, not your Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was an amusing one. I turned thirty at the end of the Kickstarter. Oh, so wow. I might, I might, I might not feel thirty. I might feel sixty at the end. <laughs> uh, probably. Happy birthday! You yeah. hit your stretch goals. We hope. I, I, I certainly hope so. It's, uh, it's, it's been a labor of love, and it's. I just, I'm really excited to get this out into the world. I'll be honest. I'm excited about this game. Yeah. To loop back around to the supernatural thing for a, a minute. One of my earliest RPG podcast listening experiences was role-playing public radio doing a series of Call of Cthulhu World War I games. And those absolutely fascinated me. And But w- what was interesting was the World War I stuff fascinated me far more than yet another Shoggoth. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. you yeah. know, they had um, – oh, goodness. Was it Scott Glancy, I think it was? Somebody who is one of those guys who goes to – World War One reenactments and is super into World War One history and trivia. And he ran a five-hour game where a little bit of Call of Cthulhu happened at, you know, the end of it. And the rest of it was just him talking about tunneling in the trenches and all the people who, you know, dug tunnels and set explosives to blow up enemy trenches. Ooh. And it was fascinating. I just, I was like, no, 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 no. Stop talking about lizard people. I want to hear more about the people yeah. mining. Yep. Like the, the, the Welshman with their picks, please come on. So, you know. Those human stories are always the most interesting ones, whether we, yes. we, we, we see it or not, mm-hmm. because they're the most relatable. Exactly. And, and it's, it's fascinating because it is real and the things people go to in extremists you know, with, with the exigencies of war and what people were trying to do to win a war with, you know, by maximizing manpower and, and minimizing expense in a way. It's just fascinating what other people will put other people through. Yes. And then you kind of look at it and think, what would I put other people through? Ooh, that's mm-hmm. uh, not a question I want to answer, you know? Yeah. It's, it's just fascinating stuff. So I'm very excited about this game. I really am. Oh, thank you. Yeah, same here. <laughs> it makes me happy. Yeah. All right. So Daniel H. Kwan on Twitter, and we will make sure to link your website, uh, your various different sites. Also, the Asians Represent podcast. We kind of touched on Asians Represent. Anything else you want to say about that? No, we, you know, give us a follow if you're interested in that. Again, it's it's not a show just for Asian people. It's a show for everyone to learn how to, you know, be more respectful at your table and mm-hmm. be a more conscious consumer of games. Yes, which are things that we have preached about over and over, no pun intended, on this show. Yes. So, <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's, Why I'm not excited. pun intended, Grant? Because it's Grant and not you or me. Okay. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> wow, we just Grant is the shut down to us crazy punsters. <laughs> yeah, I have to put up with two two punters. I can't join your ranks, please. There's no one sane left on the podcast. Come on. <laughs> it's good balance. It's good balance. I try. I play the straight man on the show. All right. Thank you very much for coming on, Daniel. We're just delighted to have you on. We really appreciate your time and good luck on your Kickstarter. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show and I will do my best to to not let you down with this Kickstarter. (laughs) All right. And if you have followed Daniel over to our show, if you want to give us a listen, we're saving the game on Twitter and Facebook. We are on the web at stgcast.org or and of course we're on itunes stitcher google play wherever fine podcasts are given away for free go ahead and give us a follow there and you know we have a whole backlog of shows that we hope that you will like yeah Yeah. and we do streams on twitch of of video games uh every friday Ooh, what are you playing right now uh i've been doing dicey dungeons which is a delightful little game oh yeah i heard about that oh it's screaming at 80 days (laughs) (laughs) Just yeah. screaming at it. It's I it won't let me go around the world south to north. And it, <sighs> Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm That's so sorry. Thank you. <laughs> I, I did have a thought, by the way, of something that we should do on stream one day, all yeah. three of us. Oh yeah? Yeah. Competitive GeoGuessr. Yes. Uh what is it? What is that? GeoGuessr is where you basically it's a little site that turns uh Google Street View into a game. Ah. Where it okay. puts you down on a street somewhere in the world, and you have to move around and figure out from context clues 
where on the world map you are. And the closer you are, the more points you get. Interesting. And it's fascinating. I would probably be terrible at that game. <laughs> but, well, you think that, but then it's like, okay, I recognize the language that's on the sign, so I know I'm in this country, except, ooh, is it? Is it really? Yeah, Are you like, sure? Because humanity is complicated. Yeah. I have gotten so lucky once. I, I started playing GeoGuessr ages and ages ago. One GeoGuess dropped me about 20 kilometers from my aunt's house. <laughs> <laughs> I was wow. like, oh. I know exactly what street I'm on. <laughs> yeah. And on I, I, that note, exactly. I think, Our, I think so too. Thank you yeah. very much for listening. Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. All of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, See folks. Ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilore.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.